0: from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 through 35. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. "'and stones those who are sent to it. "'How often would I have gathered your children together "'as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, "'and you were not willing. "'Behold, your house is forsaken, "'and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.' This is the word of the Lord. As we sang that song,
1: he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and all eyes will look upon his glorious face. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it will be to look upon the Lord Jesus, not having been found in him. It will not be a joyful sight. And the Lord Jesus warns his own people of Israel in this passage about the possibility that they will claim to be those who would be in Christ, or claim to be those who would love and worship Yahweh, and yet when they look upon Him, He will say to them, I do not know who you are. This this is the Lord Jesus Christ. In America, we have created a separate Jesus, another Jesus, a Jesus who is only approbation and only affirmation and only a healer. But no, the Lord Jesus will say to those who do not receive him, who do not enter into the narrow door, he will say to them, depart from me. That is the only Jesus that is real. All other Jesuses are false. If your Jesus would not say that to someone, you are not following the true Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean, we create a conception. It, we are po- it is possible for us to deceive ourselves that we are in Christ, and yet the Christ that we seek to worship and follow only blesses us, only makes life good for us, only rewards or strengthens or gives help or health or wealth, only approving of what we're doing never challenging us, never rebuking us to our face. Remember what he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not set on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. This is the Jesus that goes to the cross to die on behalf of his people. This is the fully gracious, merciful, meek, and mild Jesus who says to his people, take upon my yoke, it is light And yet He also recognizes and tells and warns, even as He goes to the cross to pay for sin, that there are some who will not receive Him. There are some who will not enter through the narrow door. And therefore, Jesus, as He's going to Jerusalem, is giving a warning. As we, in the season of Lent, progress towards Holy Week, we begin to follow Christ throughout the Gospel of Luke, As he makes his way towards Jerusalem for certain and impending death. I want you to think about this. You know you're going to die when you get to Columbus and you start walking there. And every day you do about a third or a sixth of the journey. And while you're going, you are warning The people of God. This is what Jesus is doing. He's moving from Galilee into Jerusalem. He's going from a distance maybe even a little bit smaller and shorter than Dayton to Columbus or Dayton to Cincinnati. And he's progressing. And as he goes, he's teaching not only about the nature of the kingdom of God, but about what true faith requires. And as soon as he begins to teach what the kingdom of God is like, He does so to steal his soul with resolve as he goes to the cross. What do I mean by that? He he is teaching the people of God around him what the kingdom of God is like, as we heard in our reading today. It's going to be like a mustard seed or like a little bit of leaven, and it's going to accomplish the mission. He's going to go to the cross, and the kingdom will grow throughout the whole world for all of the future history post-cross. Jesus, therefore, is warning those in Israel of a real possibility of spiritual delusion, that is, claiming an interest in God, but lacking any true faith in Christ manifested by loving obedience. In the New Testament, a great summary of the Christian faith is faith working through love faith to God, working through love. That is, faith is accomplishing righteousness. It's obeying the law of God, but it's working through love from God, love for one's neighbor. Even as Jesus is going to the cross, He weeps over the fact that Jerusalem has hardened her heart against God, and therefore, He knows that they will be condemned. By condemning Jesus, Jerusalem itself is condemned, and she seals her fate for judgment by slaying the final prophet sent from God. Remember the transfiguration, which we celebrated just two weeks ago. This was the prophet of whom Moses said God would require those who do not listen to him. And what what did the father say over the son at the transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Father has put His seal of approval on the Messiah, and yet at this time, the nation is about to despise Him and reject Him. Looking at this passage today, I want to examine three ideas. First, the the certainty of the kingdom. That is, that the kingdom will accomplish its purpose, that that Christ will accomplish his mission at the cross, and the mission that he has sent his apostles on will bear fruit in the world. He knew this going to the cross. Then his command to the people of God to enter through the narrow door, what it means and what it consists of. And then finally, the nature of Christ's lament over Jerusalem. Jesus is using parables in this passage to illustrate the greatness of the coming kingdom of God. He said, therefore, in verse 18, "'What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches.'" Jesus here is alluding to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 4. If you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel 4, that's recorded in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that there was a tree and it grew up and it became the largest tree in all the world. And the birds of the heavens came and nested in its branches and the beasts of the field came and rested under its shade and found refuge. And in this dream, as Daniel interprets about Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. And we know this because Daniel then says, O Lord, would that this dream be for the king's enemies and not of the king. In the middle of the dream, after this tree has been seen and the birds of the heavens come and the beasts of the fields find rest under it, a holy one of God comes in the dream. And he says of the tree, chop down the tree. In Daniel 4.14, we read, He, the Holy One of God, proclaimed and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. You see, Daniel interprets this dream to be Yahweh's humbling of this King Nebuchadnezzar, who who used to walk around his colonnade in the temple and proclaim to himself, look at this great city of Babylon that I've made with my hands and the might of my kingdom. And so this tree that is Nebuchadnezzar is a picture, not just of Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The reason this is important to see is because this is the only way to interpret the parable. What Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed is, Jesus is the tree. Jesus is the seed which must go into the earth and die to bear much fruit and to become great. In the dream, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree which provides shade to the nations. But God is going to humble that tree by lopping off its branches, stripping off and scattering all the fruit, letting the birds and the beasts flee from it. And we know this is what takes place. Nebuchadnezzar is driven from the realm of men, from society and from his kingdom. He is sent off into the wilderness and he lives like a beast. He, he turns quite literally from a man into a beast. It's very reminiscent of Romans 1 and what, what it, he becomes a living picture of the idolatry that was manifested in his kingdom. In referring to this parable, Christ is saying that the glory of the kingdom of God is going to be greater than the glory of all the kingdoms of men. The nations are going to come, and they're going to find blessing in the kingdom of God. They are the birds which come and rest in its branches, even though Israel itself is going to be cast away, which is what he later says in this passage in Luke In the very next parable, Jesus again confirms the certainty of the kingdom. What do I mean by the certainty? God's reign will be demonstrated with great glory and great influence. The nations really will come. And in the next parable, as he says, the leaven really will work its way through the dough. In verse 20, he says, and again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like a leaven, or it is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Just as the leaven that is hidden in one part of dough spreads throughout the entire lump, so also the kingdom of God. Who's ever made bread and not remembered to put leaven in the bread? I've done this a number of times. Guess what? It doesn't work. <laughs> but At the same time, when you take a little bit of leaven, if you've ever measured out dry yeast out of a a baker's kit or, or a jar, you know that this little tiny amount of leaven, which is filled with the microbial yeast that are soon going to be unleashed into the entire dough, this little tiny amount of leaven compared to this massive amount of flour and water, maybe eggs and milk that you're putting in the batter, this leaven has a profound impact on the rest of the dough. Everything that started with the inbreaking of a holy child in that city, small city of Bethlehem, which gained influence through the apostles going out to the glorious company of the nations, is going to spread to all the nations. In fact, it spread so fast that when Paul was writing one of his epistles, he said, this gospel which has been preached throughout the world. Now, there he is referring to the known world. That is the world that they had commerce with and travel. He doesn't mean that they've made it Necessarily to the Horn of Africa or the tip of South America. No, he's saying that this gospel has gone everywhere, so to speak. We see this great bearing of fruit in John's revelation in Revelation 5 9 and 10. And again, this this bearing of fruit in all the nations is directly tied with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. In Revelation 5, 9 and 10, John sees and records for us that those around the throne of God sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What a glorious, amazing promise this has become for us. But it doesn't just stop there. This isn't just a verse about the final state. John is not just seeing the post-return of Christ because he goes on to say, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Brothers and sisters, there's no need for kingdoms and certainly no no, no need for kings and certainly no need for priests who mediate God's presence to the world around them after the second coming. There's nothing. There's no enemies of Christ to evangelize. There's no enemies of Christ to judge. The church, as John sees it, is a glorious company of all the nations who have come now and who have gathered around the throne of Christ by grace, and all of that is possible because He was slain, and He spilled out His blood so that those nations could come. And the reason Jesus is using these two parables to to explain to the people of God around him that the kingdom will really take place, it really will bear fruit, is because in just a few days, he will be killed and it will look like all is lost. And nothing has been accomplished by the Messiah, the supposed Messiah. We see this when the disciples are returning on the road to Emmaus. As they talk with him in Luke 24, they said, We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We don't hope anymore. And yet, Jesus, even as he goes to the cross, is so sure of God's favor over him and his ability by the Spirit to accomplish the work of the cross that he knows and is teaching what the kingdom of God in history will be like. It will be like a tree which becomes the greatest of the trees, and all the birds of the air will come and find rest in its branches, and all the beasts of the field will come and find shade under it. Even though Christ is on his way to die, he knows that he will accomplish a magnanimous redemption, a redemption that is world-changing in scope and in fruit. That is what the Lord Jesus is doing with these parables. He's stealing His soul. He's, res, he's, he's creating resolve in Him and in His hearers. Therefore, as Christ journey, journeys to Jerusalem, He is asked whether or not all of Israel is going to be saved because this was the expectation of the Messiah in that day. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Christ here treats this question as a mere speculation because he doesn't answer the question. He does indirectly but this question does not come from true religious zeal. It comes from speculation. It, be, it comes from a place of just moral quandary. Just, Lord, is Israel really going to be saved or will she be rejected? He doesn't answer directly. But his answer indeed confirms that not all who, ex- who externally pro- profess faith and religion are of true reality and real substance. In telling the crowd to strive to enter, Jesus is designing or meaning that they are to make a diligent use of the means of God's grace. What do we mean when we use the phrase, the means of God's grace? Well, first, the means of God's grace is to search the scriptures with care. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they search the scriptures, and yet those are concerning Jesus Christ. Not only do Christians and those who seek to enter in the narrow gate, not only must they search the Scriptures with care, they must attend to the preaching of the Word. It is a great tragedy that in America, the church cultures which we have fostered have made people comfortable with attending Lord's Day worship occasionally. What do I mean by this? I mean that unless you are prevented by extreme circumstances, you ought to be under the preaching of God's Word. That is to say that through the preaching of God's Word, God accomplishes transformation of sinners who only love idolatry and their sin to those who are given new eyes and a new heart and they can see Christ and they can love Christ and they can want Christ instead of that which they formerly loved. Those who enter the narrow door are those who pray earnestly for spiritual light and knowledge and grace. Those who enter the narrow door do not think lightly of the things of God. Test yourself in this. How often have you thought of the glory of the resurrection? As we're going to talk about in just a minute or two, how often have you thought of the warnings of Scripture against going to hell? Have you ever given serious thought to the possibility that you may have not entered the narrow door? Those who enter through the narrow door do not think trivial or trivially about the weighty and eternal matters of life. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Life does not consist in being healthy. Life does not consist in having friends. The point of life is to know God, to enjoy God, and woe are you if your heart is driven after other things but Christ. As Paul says in one of his epistles, let those who love not the Lord Jesus be anathema. That is one of the most amazing verses to me in, that, have ever, that ever came out of pen, Paul's pen. Let those who love not the Lord Jesus Christ Be anathema. What does he mean by anathema? Let them be raised up to God. Let God deal with them. He's writing to the church. That's how he closes one of the epistles. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's 2 Corinthians, but I'm not sure. The point that I'm making is that we who wish to enter through the narrow door must give ourselves to strive to enter. Jesus is not concerned about people who are doing religious works. He is rather concerned with those who are not concerned at all with being sure that they've entered through the narrow door, which is Christ and nothing else. Jesus then gives an illustration to describe the rejection of hypocritical believers or false believers. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus is quoting in that last line, one of the verses out of Psalm 119, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, that I might keep the commandments of God. Jesus is going to judge justly. And in so doing, he desires as the prophet of Israel, the great prophet, to warn them before it comes to pass. Jesus here is describing their rejection in the imagery of a dinner feast which has already begun and the guests who were invited failed to enter before the door was shut. In the other gospels, Jesus explains that those who do not enter into the wedding feast or into the dinner feast do not enter because they are caught up with the things of this world and the sins of the flesh. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, the sins of the flesh are sins of the mind and sins of the body. Not just false doctrine, but also wickedness in behavior, sexual immorality and drunkenness, greed and avarice and gluttony, wrathfulness, anger expressed through violence. These are sins of the body. What are sins of the mind? False doctrine. Vain and low thoughts of God. Weak and impenitent thoughts of Christ. False Christ. All of these Jesus has in mind. They were caught up with the desire for other things. You see, the greatest problem about sin is not that we are unable to stop sin because we cannot. It is because we do not stop sinning because we don't want to stop sinning. That's the nature of sin. We love it. The things that we do which are against God's law are not done because we are confused, but rather because our hearts have no desire or interest in Christ. These people begin to knock upon the door after seeing the glories of God's kingdom compared with the darkness which is in the streets of the city. In the imagery of the parable that Jesus is using, it is like a dinner party... And imagine a dinner party in the ancient world where the streets are not lit by street lamps powered with electricity. Outside of the dinner hall, there is nothing but darkness. There is no food. There is no warmth. There is nothing good. There is no benediction at all. And yet before they had seen the glory of Christ in the midst of this dinner party, they had no desire or interest in Him. Christ, as I say, is the greatest prophet, and the point of of understanding the transfiguration was to see that if anyone does not listen to Christ, God himself will require it of that person. In demanding that they depart from him, Jesus disowns them as not true children of God, but rather children of the devil. In calling them workers of evil, or in some translations, workers of iniquity, He doesn't just say that their deeds are evil, but rather that they are, as some translations say and some texts say, lying workers. That is to say that they have done external deeds, attending church or attending synagogue, trying to keep the commandments, but they have done these in a profession of faith that is merely a profession of faith with no true substance. They are workers of iniquity in that their deeds do not match their profession. They, if they do any religious deeds, they are external and they are showy. They might attend church, but they have no real interest in coming close to God. This is who the Lord Jesus Christ tells to depart from him. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. He will say that to some people. Christ, therefore, describes the state of torment in those days. It says in verse 28: In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know what gnashing of teeth is? Gnashing of teeth is the grinding of teeth under agony and in wrath against what is taking place to the person who is grinding their teeth. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Christ here designs, and by that I mean intends, nothing less than the full reality of hell. Test yourselves in this, brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought about what hell is like? Jesus was not dismayed from speaking about the state of those who fail to enter through the narrow door. He was willing to teach publicly upon it, and he was willing to elucidate the reality of what hell is like. In fact, I spent about 10 minutes last night just examining various passages in the New Testament and Old Testament alike which describe that their worm does not ever stop consuming them. The fire never is quenched. That the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever before the Lord. This is the description of those who reject Christ, see no need or interest in Him, who do not wish to do anything with Him, who do not see Him as the only means of transformation from their wicked heart to a heart that loves God. This is the state of those who reject Christ. The eternal state of those who reject Christ and fail to enter into His kingdom will be everlasting punishment in which there will be nothing but weeping forever and ever. In Second Thessalonians 1, Paul says to the Thessalonians concerning those who do not enter into the kingdom of God, he says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I look through verse after verse describing the nature of hell and the one I wished to bring to bear that's not in this text, not only will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but as Second Thessalonians says, the worst part about hell is not the fire, It is not the weeping. It is not the gnashing of teeth. It is this. They will be away from the presence of the Lord. They will never experience the blessedness of God. They will never enjoy the presence and benediction and sweetness that our God is because they wish to love their sin. That is the worst punishment of hell. It is not the fire. It is not the weeping. It is not the grieving over the sins committed in the body. Those are terrible, but the worst punishment of hell is knowledge that you will never know God. That is the lowly state of the damned. That is the state of all those who see no need for Christ. They do not know God and they do not wish to. And yet Jesus says at this very place, even as he's describing the rejection that will take place for the unbelieving Jews, Christ says gloriously that all the promises that were given to the patriarchs and the prophets have not failed in the least, but they have borne fruit in a people who come from all the nations. Those who come from the four corners of the earth do so by the gospel going into every place and bearing amazing fruit. This is a wonderful mystery, and yet the New Testament explains that it was God's desire that the gospel would bear fruit in the nations, that even though Israel was rejected for a time, that at the fullness of the Gentiles, Israel itself would come into the kingdom. And this begins to take place as soon as Christ is raised. He tells his apostles to go into all the nations because he has all authority in heaven and earth, and they take the gospel into every place. And as Jesus says, you will see people coming from the north and from the west and from the east and from the south, and they will come and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Even as Jesus is warning Israel to repent, these Pharisees bring news that Herod wishes to kill him. Just as Herod the Great sought to kill Jesus at his birth, so also Herod, his son, desires to kill Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. Isn't it amazing that not only do the Pharisees wish to kill Jesus, and not only does Pilate actually hand him over to be crucified, but Herod at this time also wanted to put him to death. Herod, the false king of Israel, is desiring to put to death the true real king of real Israel. And yet, Jesus is undismayed by these threats. Consider, brothers and sisters, the glory of what Jesus says in these verses. In verse 31, it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. you imagine talking about one of our rulers? go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Even with the reminder of his impending death, Jesus was undeterred in his course. Instead of running from Jerusalem, he's running towards Jerusalem to face the rejection of the entire nation, all while healing people along the way. Today, I perform cures and cast out devils, and then I finish my course. He's about to pay for the sins of the entire church of God. He's about to make an atonement by which the whole redeemed community of all those after Adam who have sinned and transgressed and been given grace in God... He will pay for their sins upon the cross and accomplish a great and mighty redemption. And yet He is so committed to His mission that He's going to heal people all along the way. Amazing. What the Lord Jesus does in the face of His impending death is amazing. He is so selfless in His giving of His time and of His energy and of His self to the rest of God's people, that even in the face of the final days before he is to be put to death, he is healing people and casting out devils. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes us say when we see this by faith, oh, how marvelous and beautiful a savior, the one who is going to give himself up to transform wicked and wretched sinners. And yet at the same time, even as he is doing that, he is stooping down to the lowly And those who need him immediately. Jesus here is saying so much more than that Jerusalem has a habit of killing God's prophets. He is not just saying that it is impossible for a prophet to be crucified outside of Jerusalem because Jerusalem has a habit of killing the prophets. Rather, John Gill observes in his commentary that the Jews only permitted a false prophet to be tried in the city of Jerusalem. They had to face trial by the Sanhedrin, the 70 spiritual rulers of Israel. Therefore, when Jesus is setting his face towards Jerusalem, he is not just committed to being crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem, he is committed to be scourged and to be tried by not only the Jews but also the Romans, knowing full well that he will be rejected by the nation. He is not just going to be rejected by individual Israelites who do not trust in him, who do not cling to him for salvation. He is going to be judged by the nation's representatives. You and I, we occasionally see representatives say ridiculous things in the House or in the Senate or on the Supreme Court with the judges. But brothers and sisters the president and the Supreme Court and the justices and the representatives and the senators, they represent our nation well. They are a perfect picture of who we are as people, greedy and boastful and slaying of innocent children. That is a picture of what our government is like. The government in America rightly represents the people of America because federalism understood in God's economy in God's philosophy, is right. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem to be rejected by the Sanhedrin, he goes there so that he will be rejected by the nation. When the Sanhedrin turn him over to Pilate, it is the nation rejecting the Messiah. Yes, there are individuals within that nation who trust in him as the Messiah, but by and large, just as the king's the, the kings of old were rejected by the people of Israel, so also the Christ. David himself was rejected by the tribes. How much more, therefore, the son of David will be rejected by the tribes? Verse 34, Jesus, knowing what will take place to himself, says of Jerusalem, look at the heart, the tender, merciful heart of the Lord. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? One of the greatest joys in my heart of being a father is the act of hugging my children. I want you to imagine this, you who are parents. The Lord Jesus is describing the city of Jerusalem as a parent. He is saying to the city of Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem. I wanted, to, I wanted to hug you. I wanted to gather you in. I wanted to bring you close and assure you that everything will be right and protect you from harm, and you'd never wanted it. Do you see the scorning of the love of God on the, part, on the behalf of Israel? This is the full emotional scope of what's taking place. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, wanted His people to be gathered to Himself. And yet, they wanted nothing to do with Him. In fact, they not only wanted nothing to do with Him, they actively sought to put Him to death. Jesus says, "'How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings?' and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What Jesus is saying to the city of Jerusalem is he is saying that in your judgment of me, in your condemnation of me, you are condemning yourself to judgment Jesus here is lamenting, weeping over the despicable state of Israel and expresses deep anguish at the hardness of her heart. Just as a mother hen gathers its chicks under its wings and protects them from harm, Jesus is desiring to gather them, but they would not have his reign over them. This is a picture of the utter insanity of what sin is. Instead of receiving the gracious love of the Son of God, Israel chose to reject his yoke, which is easy and light, and instead take on the yoke of bondage and siege. Jesus says to the nation, take my yoke upon you. Come to me if anyone is thirsty, and I will give you water. You will never thirst again, and yet they want to hew out for themselves broken cisterns in which there is no water. Instead of receiving the gospel of grace, Israel is clinging to her idols and despising Yahweh in the flesh, not only despising Him, but putting Him to death. Brothers and sisters, imagine the mercy of God. Not only does God not immediately judge Israel, at this time, but he waits an entire generation. He sends apostles, prophets, and evangelists into Jerusalem and into the surrounding regions of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and he sends in his gospel full of power, full of demonstrations of God's grace, full of miracles the apostles are wielding as their shadow itself is healing people who are sick in the streets of Israel. God gave them an entire generation to repent until he finally set the Romans in judgment. Even in the judgment of God, he is extremely merciful in that he gave them another 40 years to repent. And indeed, we see in the book of Acts, some did, but the vast majority did not. As Paul closes his letter, excuse me, closes the section in his letter In Romans 11, concerning the nation of Israel, he says to the Christians in the city of Rome, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Seeing the judgment of God against hardness of heart and merely external religion, let us enter the narrow door of Christ lest any of us be shut out of his kingdom. Make sure you enter that door, brothers and sisters. Know for certain that you have laid hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ with all that you have. Cry out for grace that you might be able to behold him, not only what he did at the cross, but your deep need for his transforming power. Not only what he did at that cross, but for the work of the Holy Spirit to transform your heart from loving sin and even just other things more than Christ. Let's close. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was not ashamed to speak of the reality of hell, that he was not afraid to warn your people who were rejecting you, your covenant people that you had given promises to, who were heirs of the covenant and heirs of the, the patriarchs, who were sons of Abraham according to lineage, but not according to faith or reality. Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see our great need for Jesus Christ and the glorious promises that attend those who enter through your narrow door. Lord, it is our desire, more than anything else, more than material goods or health or wealth or, or friendship or a knowledge even of your scriptures and in, in the information of them, that you would give us yourself. Lord, it is our deep desire to commune with you truly. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes, help us to behold Christ and to apprehend him and cling to him by faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.